welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. ChargeHub is the largest network-independent, community-driven EV charging app, helping over 1 million annual users find all public charging stations in the U.S. and Canada, check their availability, and pay for their charging with a single account. ChargeHub launched its interoperability hub, the Passport Hub, to support the EV industry to easily interconnect and enable large-scale roaming to drivers. Download the app today to improve your EV experience. All right, welcome everyone to Clean Tech Talk. I'm your host, Joe Boris, and I'm here with the first of a series of episodes with Volvo Construction Equipment. And our first guest today is going to be Dr. Ray Gallant. He's the Vice President of Sustainability and Productivity Services of Volvo Construction Equipment North America. And we also have Tora Leafland, Head of Public Affairs at Volvo CE. So both of you, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Now, Ray, you're responsible for Volvo's vision in North America and and future product development technologies, customer center operations, all of that. And a lot of that is motivated by, obviously, Volvo's approach to sustainability and ultimately reducing carbon emissions and fighting back climate change. How much of a change, how much of an improvement can we expect to see by converting a lot of this diesel equipment to electric. And the reason I ask that is because so much of the conversation has been focused on electric cars, on Tesla, on Polestar, that there's a whole other sort of land of emissions generating diesels, whether it's generators or excavators, everything like that, that really could be changed over to electric for the better. I I think when you look at the effect of decarbonizing the off-road sector, you have to put it in the context of where we come from. So you're absolutely right. You know, our emissions compared to automotive a few years ago or trucking a few years ago or or industrial basis, all, all those, our emissions footprint is fairly small. But as those industries clean up, And as they transform to a greener footprint, the effect of off-road becomes more prominent because we become a larger part of the issue then, a larger proportion of the greenhouse gases. Right, right you become a bigger slice of a smaller pie. Exactly. So right now, the transportation is running about 30% of the emissions overall in the U.S. So So it's an important sector to take a look at but it is in the evolution of decarbonizing all industries and making more sustainable industries across the board that you have to look at this now and i know we like to talk about the environmental benefits the air pollution benefits the job site quality of life benefits of transitioning to electric but there's a different kind of sustainability in the construction industry when we talk about sustainability and logistics and in construction we talk about two things we talk about environmental sustainability which is what we normally talk about at clean technica but we also talk about the sustainability of business the ability to keep operations going and keep things going is there a sacrifice in terms of performance in terms of productivity that's made when you switch to electric because the assumption would be that you're going to lose a lot of time charging these things so Our job, as we see it, 
is to make sure there is no sacrifice in productivity or in efficiency of job sites. In fact, the other way around, if we want this to be successful, we have to be offering benefits that a conventional diesel could not offer. Now, emissions is the obvious one that everybody thinks of first. So we offer a solution that has no emissions, but we also have to take advantage of the fact that we can offer quieter solutions. We can offer less vibration. We can offer less maintenance costs. We can offer a lower cost of operation. So all those factors come in to paint a picture where we are in a position now, technology is matured enough now that we can actually offer a viable alternative. In a lot of my presentations, I talk about sustainability being a balance of three elements. Uh, one is the environment, as you've talked about, you know, how can we run our businesses with less pollution, less effect on the environment, better use of the raw materials, circularity, all those issues. The second one is the social aspects. Are we running our businesses in a way that's socially acceptable, that's meeting the desires of society and they evolve, of course, all the time as new generations come into play. But the third, and as important, in my opinion, is are we economically viable? So can we generate profit from these products? And I know that's a dirty word in some areas, but can we generate enough product that we can keep reinvesting, keep developing, keep improving these technologies and distributing them? in a way that makes sense for future footprint. It makes no sense to me to develop a technology only to have all the companies working on it go bankrupt trying to put it out there. That isn't a sustainable model. So we That's have really to figure good point. out how to balance those three, those three needs of sustainability. I often talk about the three Ps of sustainability or three pillars being the people, the planet, and the profits. And we have to keep them in balance. And you said the key word, it's it's a transition, it's a transformation that we're doing. It's not a race to an endpoint. It's the journey to get there that's important of how we do that in a reasonable and sustainable way. In how we execute the journey is as important as where we end up. So Ray, you're doing a great job. This is your first podcast, I can tell. <laughs> This yeah, is really never good done stuff. this before. Never done this before. No, this is great. You know, we talk about profitability and I, I actually love this topic of conversation, right? Because there is a incredible push these days towards more sustainable technology. And again, sustainable in the ways that we talked about sustainable in terms of being able to conduct business, meeting the needs of the society, and also doing the right thing for the planet. And when we talk about those three P's, I really want to talk a little bit more about profitability, which probably not what we were, what we'd set out to talk about, but I think it's worth staying on this for a few minutes. There are a couple of different ways to calculate profitability because it's not just a question of how much can I buy something for and resell it. As fleet managers look at this bigger picture and they look at things like reducing injury, reducing mistakes on the job, reducing worker fatigue, reducing call outs and, and things like workers comp claims, how does electric support all of those different factors? How does it eliminate all of those variables that can chip away at an operator's profitability? To me, electric is an enabler to do a lot of these other things. When we talk about electric technologies, first of all, they aren't new. Right. You know, we've we've had batteries, we've had electric motors, we've had switches, we've had control systems for 
gears and you know going on a century so that this is not new technology by any means what's happening today which is part of the transformation and and what i find very exciting is you're merging different technologies so you're merging a baseline of electric drives and sustainable power drives be it hydrogen generated electric be it battery electric be it grid connected electric whatever source you get the electricity from is irrelevant the fact that it's electric means that we can also tap into it and do a lot of work with telematics and control the machines very precisely with telematics systems that are we're developing and help the operators be better operators, quite honestly. And finally, that leads to ultimately automation. You know, anything from simple systems like power brakes, power steering, to full operatorless machines for very dangerous applications or very repetitive applications or very remote locations where you simply can't get operators to do those jobs. So though those merging of technologies are enabled by the fact that we're using electricity as the communication medium and the power medium, which makes it an exciting time to be around. So we're no longer having to figure out how to control diesel with an electric signal, you can do that step in one one process. That's great stuff. You know, I, that's leading me right into the next question I was going to talk about, which are the big trends that are shaping the industry today. And, you know, we've got good friends of ours that are in the mining industry, they're in the lithium mining, and they all want to talk about autonomous. They want to talk about autonomous equipment. They want to talk about AI. And it seems like a lot of that is coming in conjunction with, in concert with these electric vehicles and the electrified technology. And Volvo's really leading the way here because you've already got AI semi-autonomous or, or even fully autonomous equipment that's out there, at least in some pilot programs. Yes, we do. And, you know, Tora can jump in here. We actually have a company. We have two companies, one Volvo Autonomous Services, which obviously from their name, you can guess what they do. And then Volvo Energy, who takes care of the battery life cycle for us, who manages that process. And the reason for those two companies is the merging of these technologies and making sure that we do that in a good way. And of course, Volvo Group, we have got a number of different products. So we want to be able to develop the same technology and carry it over various different product groups. So we borrow from what buses did when they electrified over 10 years ago, we're borrowing that technology and those learnings to make our integration into machines much easier and much faster. And then hopefully we will evolve those machines and take it forward in the next step and buses will be able to benefit from our work in the next step of their evolution. So it, it's that process. You know, and I talked about the Volvo Group companies, but this also starts to include partners up and down the value chain. Not only is it important that we coordinate with truck, but we need to coordinate with all our vendors coming into the process, all our suppliers, all the engineering companies that are building these components to make sure that this transition is seamless and, again, viable from an economic point of view going forward. Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned that because we've seen that again in recent months. There was a, an announcement with a couple of different semi-truck manufacturers that were going to 
be working together on a Cummins based battery that they were going to work with. Now, I think you guys have historically, obviously through Volvo Energy, had your own battery development program, but you now are in partnership with Daimler through a Geely Association, as I understand it. And maybe this is a question for Tora. Tora, can you walk us through how Volvo with its partners is working to develop these things and meet some of the climate change targets that the, the corporation has laid out for itself? Absolutely. Maybe maybe I should start a bit about the, um, the, the climate targets or the climate strategy in general. So, I mean, we, uh, we have an ambition to have an, a net zero value chain by 2040 and and to achieve this we've set uh, science-based targets and and this will help our customers to to have uh, zero emission fleets by 2050 in line with with the Paris agreement and and the science backed up by the international panel on on climate change and to reach that we have a target to sell at least 35 percent fully electric sales by 2030. And in terms of technology, we have a three-pronged approach, we say. So first one is battery electric. Second one, fuel cell electric, powered by hydrogen, so also an electric motor. And then thirdly, we're looking at other types of sustainable power, like um, biofuels or, or hydrogen in a combustion engine. So we're looking into all three of these, and we think different solutions will, will work in, in different, different markets. And, and batteries, you mentioned as well, we get a lot of questions around sustainable sourcing of batteries, in particular, the battery minerals like uh, lithium and, and cobalt. And we're trying to address this in, in different ways. So to start with, of course, we have um, laid out our expectations on our suppliers in a code of conduct and so on. We make all new suppliers respond to, to questions on social and environmental impact. And then we have um, a sustainable minerals program uh, for conflict minerals, including cobalt, where we have a, a third party, an NGO, coming in to, to audit the smelters that we source from. And we're also, of course, welcoming new regulation in this area. Now, Tora, we talked about some of the trends in the technology. What are some of the trends, not only in public policy, but in public perception that are driving some of this push for sustainability to address climate change? And if you have some specific numbers to share with us about that, can you do so to talk about the impact that you're having in this switch to electrification? Sure. So when addressing global warming, I think all emissions count. And there are some estimates that the um, construction machines emit around 400 million tons of CO2 annually. And that's the equivalent of 1% of global CO2 emissions or half of the emissions from aviation globally. So it's not negligible and definitely something we need to work on. And then you mentioned, you know, the big trends, um, and we can come to policy in a moment, but one big global trend that I think has been around for decades is urbanization, which means more people in cities, which means uh, more a bigger need for new buildings and infrastructure, which also means additional CO2 emissions. And uh, according to, to C40, C40 is an organization for for cities that have set net zero targets across the world, they claim that we need to build 1 billion new homes until 2050, or until 2025, sorry, and that 60% of buildings that will exist by 2050 are not yet built. So that's that's a lot of construction. That's like building a city like Stockholm or Milan every week until 2050, or a Singapore or New York every month until 2050. So clearly we need to address climate change in that context of, of all this construction needed. 
another reason for addressing climate change, of course, if you look at the in the policy areas to limit conflicts over land and water, as we know, global warming leads to, to water scarcity and smaller harvests in, in some part of the world. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. If you enjoy cleantech talk and cleantechnica, please consider pitching in a few dollars a month at cleantechnica.com slash support. That's cleantechnica.com slash support, where you can sign up in seconds with a credit card, pitch in a few dollars a month or whatever you like. Some people actually contribute $100 a month to help us cover climate change and clean tech and try to help the world one word at a time. Thank you. If I was a smart person, what question would I ask you right now? Because that seems like a really crucially important comment, and I don't want it to be a throwaway. Talk to us a little bit about that if you can. I think maybe the the question is then around, you know, what Ray talked a lot about what, what we can do to show the benefits, you know, the advantages of electrification, but what can yes. governments actually do? Because that's a that's a dialogue that we have with them, you know, their their role to push for this transformation. Yeah. So so we'll ask it just like that. So what kind of role do you think policymakers and governments can take to advance and accelerate this kind of transformation? Well, we see that governments have a, a crucial role to play here, providing both stick and carrot, you could say. We, we see that the demand for electric machines is, is greater in places where you have perhaps both financial incentives, but also strict tender requirements or have included construction equipment in zero emission zones in, in cities. In the city of Oslo, for example, the city have said all municipal construction should be zero emission by 2025. And this, of course, creates a bigger demand for electric equipment in that market. The other quick thing I would add there is I think governments and associations play a big role in the in getting common standards and common language for all these new technologies. So right now we've adopted the automotive standards for charging. So we use exactly the same plugs that you would use on your car, be it a J1772 AC plug or a CCS1 plug to charge. We use the same plugs for the machines. But as we develop these higher power chargers, we're going to need standards on how you work on them, how you safely use them, how you plug them in, what the plugs look like. You know, all those type of things has got to be coordinated if we're going to go forward in a good way. Now, is that something that comes from government or is that something that comes from corporations? Because I feel like on the automotive side, there wasn't that governmental policy push, at least not in North America, towards a certain charging standard. And now it seems like the CCS and the NACS are kind of neck and neck. Chatamo has fallen by the wayside. There's been a couple of other pretenders that have come and gone already in terms of the megawatt charging. So do you think that that's something that's going to come from corporations partnering together and agreeing on a standard? Or do you think that has to come from the top down? I think it has to come first from corporations and our associations, you know, associations like the AEM, Association of Equipment Manufacturers, or AED, Association of Equipment Distribution, that can start to pull together what is the the landscape and then eventually governments can come in and start standardizing across the industry 
Well, and Volvo, there's two things that you said here that I really want to focus on. The first one is you talk about having a net zero value chain and, and essentially being meeting those carbon goals. And you guys are, are trying to get real carbon reductions. You're not relying on carbon credits. You're not doing offsets. You're trying to do this without gimmicks and without games. So I think that needs to be highlighted and it should be applauded and commended. So, so we can leave that. The other thing that you mentioned was the audits and the verifiability of this. We've done a couple of articles about Volvo technology and Volvo battery sourcing, where you guys have committed to green steel and carbon-free steel, and you have put in place a blockchain system to verify the provenance of your minerals as you go through this. And there's also programs in place where you're looking at recycling the battery materials that you do have. So as the batteries come towards the end of life, those minerals don't have to be drawn out of the earth again. They can be reused and we're seeing, you know, in the high 90s, 95, 97% ability to recycle and reclaim those minerals and those cathode materials and things like that. This is all happening on the Volvo energy side. This is happening on the Volvo CE side, or is there a different kind of category for all this stuff? Okay, so to start with, when it comes to our battery strategy, I think it's also worth mentioning that we're investing in battery cell production, so our own factory in Mariestad in Sweden, to, to get even more control of the sourcing of the batteries. And then we're in addition to that, we're also working with, with different suppliers. And then we have Volvo Energy, this business area that Ray mentioned before, looking at second life of batteries and the business models around that. We're still at the sort of the infancy of electromobility on the construction equipment side. But as time goes on, we'll have more and more batteries that can be used for second life applications. And that will reduce the need for mining new battery uh, minerals. Uh, just to jump in here, if, if you take a look at the duty cycles, one of the important points when you look at heavy equipment or heavy trucking, is that's a very difficult application for battery electric because of the fact that we use full charge basically every day or two or three times a day and have to recharge very, very quickly. So it's a very tough application from a chemistry physics point of view on the batteries. So we consider our batteries to be good for equipment use up till about 80% degradation or 20% degradation, I should say, 80% good. And after that, we see a good second life for those batteries. So it's not just, you know, when they hit 80%, you take them out and throw them in the landfill. It's okay, let's take those batteries and let's put them in better battery energy storage systems, best systems. Let's put them in houses as a backup. Let's use them in other applications where they can, you know, zero at 80% with a trickle charger is fine. That'll do the need for that and extend the life of the battery till eventually they degrade to the point where you can't do anything with them. The interesting thing about the battery chemistry is the black matter, the electrolyte is 100% recoverable. So if you can replace the cathode nanode, we can then recycle those batteries. So that's the circularity that we're talking about that Volvo Energy is dealing with is how do you not only manage the process at end of life or in second life, but manage the entire life cycle. So we monitor the batteries, figure out when is the sweet spot to pull them out, to put them in a second application, to replace the machine batteries with new or with re remanufactured or whatever the case 
may be and how do we manage that entire cycle going through and that's something that's never been done in the industry generally we're used to a, a fuel tank where you know when it's empty it's a hunk of sheet metal nobody that's really right. worries too much about getting rid of it batteries are a different case one they have a lot of value even when they're not suitable necessarily for a truck or machine use they still have a lot of residual value in there so we need to capture that for the customer capture that for the industry and make use of that before we get to the eventual rebuilding or remanufacturing stage which is recover the electrolyte put in new cathode or anode and have a new battery that's great stuff you know you mentioned something really interesting this best system where you do the second life of the battery as an energy storage system in a lot of these locations that heavy equipment is being used especially when you're talking about offshore wind when you're talking about remote mining operations it's hard to build out a charging infrastructure especially for these machines and that seems to be something that's a big concern but the idea of being able to trickle charge a large battery and then essentially plug into it at night or plug into it at the end of the shift seems to be something that a lot of other companies are exploring. And that seems to answer the question, at least partially, of how you put a charging infrastructure out in the middle of nowhere. How are you addressing other questions about charging? How are you addressing fleet managers' questions about how they're going to charge these up at night? So there's a couple of different aspects there that I I could bring up. So one of the problems with electricity is it it's fairly easy to generate and that's one thing but it's very very hard to store yes um you know storage is very expensive with these batteries and you know it's it's hard to transport they're heavy you know so it's not ideally you generate it and use it like any fuel source you wouldn't want to store it but that is what we that is the physics of electricity so even if you look at power plants today, if you need a 200 megawatts at peak production, you have to build a plant that produces 200 megawatts if you're going to use it immediately. And the problem is that even if you only need it for an hour a day, that plant has the capacity to produce it 24 hours a day. So the big struggle the industry has got to deal with is how do you take that high capacity need for a very limited period and make that make a smaller plant that can generate that over 24 hours but use it in an hour for instance and that's exactly the same struggle that we're dealing with with equipment so our struggle is how do you get a very fast discharge to the machine but not have to have a generation of that very high power for a very short period of time because that's obviously very inefficient. So we're looking at basically three different methods. If you are in a, an area where you can plug in to the grid, then obviously that's the easiest and cheapest way to do it. So you use electricity from the grid, draw what you need, charge your machines. So all you have to make sure there is you have enough grid power available. Not all areas have enough grid power available, especially some of the sites that we work in where there's no grid power available. That's right. So then we need to figure out how do you take the power to the machine? So how do you make it mobile, which is the analogy is fuel truck. Right. So we're used to taking the fuel truck out, fueling the machines up every day and putting them back to work the next day. You're going to do the same thing with electric power, except you take a battery pack out to the machine 
charge your machine very quickly from the battery pack. And then the battery pack, you can trickle charge it for the next day's use. And then the third one is if neither one of those are practical, how do you generate it on site? So you're seeing a lot of, of work done and a lot of attention paid to micro generation systems where you can generate a few megawatts of electricity per day on your site, use it immediately or through a best system and generate your power that way. So it's no longer waiting for utility to hook up a site. You'll set up your own infrastructure and then the utility can come in and power the site on a permanent basis at the end of the project. So it's a little yeah. bit of a change in thinking. No, it sounds incredible. And, you know, one of the things that gets brought up all the time, especially when we talk about heavy equipment, big trucks, really, truly big machines is hydrogen. And that mm -hmm. seems to me, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not a scientist, you know, I, it's been 20 years since I was driving a big truck. So the, the question that I have would be, you know, is there a place for hydrogen you know, obviously there, there seems to be a place for hydrogen over the road trucking and things like that, but is there a place for hydrogen in this kind of energy production, energy creation space to power these other machines on site? Absolutely. Hydrogen, if you look at it just in terms of what we do, hydrogen is the ideal fuel. Uh, on a weight basis, it's extremely efficient. You can get a lot of energy out of a kilogram of hydrogen you can combust it or you can run it through a fuel cell, make electricity. So it's very, very flexible. The problems with hydrogen are transporting it, storing it, and generating it. Or oh, just like electricity. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the problem right now is with today's technology, it takes a lot of electricity to produce a kilogram of hydrogen. And although a kilogram is very energy efficient from a weight point of view, it's not that efficient from a volume point of view. And because it's a very, very small molecule, it's very hard to seal and transport and handle without having a lot of leakage. So obviously, when you're dealing with hydrogen, you want to be able to generate it very close to where you're going to use it and use it as quickly as possible. Otherwise, it'll bleed, you'll have losses in your system, and you're spending a lot of energy going in to produce hydrogen that you don't ultimately get the work out of. Ideally, we should also have uh, green hydrogen, if possible. Ideally, it's green hydrogen as well, and that, that means that you're, you know, there's two main ways to produce hydrogen. One is from methane gas or natural gas. The other is electrolysis. And ideally, we'd like to see all electrolysis, but of course, that demands a lot of energy. But you're already seeing it appear in work sites, mainly in the heavier equipment, which is where batteries start seeing their limitations. So to power a, a thousand horsepower haul truck, for instance, mining haul truck, we simply can't put enough batteries on board. And if we did, they're too heavy that the payload of the truck is gonna be compromised. So the, there, a hydrogen becomes a very good solution because weight-wise, as I said, it's very, very efficient. Volume-wise, we have an engineering challenge is where are we going to put the tanks and where are we going to get that much volume of gas on? And handling it's a bit of a challenge, but those are the pros and cons of hydrogen. As a fuel source, it's ideal because you get 
you know, you take hydrogen gas in, you get out electricity, heat, and water. So right. it, it couldn't be better. But so it's a question of how you're going to generate it. But yeah, there are challenges generating, storing, transporting. You make a really good point about sealing it and the ability to seal and effectively transport this. We've had some conversations with the guys out in California. These are like NASA guys who talk about sealing lines and the importance of seals and preventing leakage. And they had some kind of ridiculous number, like the average amount of natural gas that goes into a residential home you know, to power the stove and the furnace and all this that just leaks out into the house is something like 19% because they're not using aircraft grade or, or fuel grade kind of seals. You guys can't be losing that much in terms of transporting the hydrogen or, or is it just a question of time? The longer, the, the further distance you have to move it, the more is going to leak out. There's that. And it. It's more complicated than that as well. There's a, a matter of... It just gets worse and know, worse. <laughs> yeah, every joint you have, every weld you have has, of course, inclusions or gas can escape. Every valve has some kind of sealing system that gas can escape. So the, the more times you you know, pump it in and pump it out, the more leakage you're going to have. And simply put, you know, the steel on the tanks or the carbon fiber, whatever we're using as a tank material, it isn't perfect either. Right. So there's always going to be leakage on there. But the good news is the technology is getting much better for that. The other factor is, of course, how much pressure and the temperature that you store it at is also a consideration. Because if we store gas at 300 bar, yeah, you can fairly easily seal that off and have relatively low leakage rates. You get up to 700 bar, it becomes tougher. You get to liquid, it becomes tougher still. So, you know, those are considerations that a lot of people are looking at is how we're going to engineer this to be a practical system for hydrogen. But I see a lot of promise because quite frankly, batteries run into their limitations in availability, weight, and power that we have out of them. You can only pack it so thick, right. and then the energy density, you run out. Well, you know, the good news is that most of our readers, most of our listeners are, you know, what I would call battery absolutists, right? They want to see everything be electric and battery, and battery powered. And I, I understand that a lot of that is is driven by passenger cars and that kind of passenger car experience. But let, let's talk a little bit more about the battery electric equipment that you do have right now, because Volvo is really leading the way on this. It seems like, you know, you guys have the largest electric excavators in operation. It seems like your wheel loaders, you know, have the electric compactor that's relatively recent. Talk about some of the, and this might be a question for Torah. Can you talk about some of the pilot programs that you have going on right now where these where this equipment is in use right now, every day as we speak? Sure. So first I can highlight right now at um, the biggest fossil-free construction site that we have ongoing in, in Sweden right now. It's a major urban development, redevelopment right in the city, south of the city center in Stockholm. Uh, and there the city requested to have that the whole work site should be fossil-free and 10% emission-free. So in, in that project, we have our EC230 electric 23-ton excavator, uh, and that 
corresponds to the 10% emission-free content on that site. And the feedback that we have is that all the operators want to drive this machine uh, because of what Ray highlighted before. It's, it's quiet, less vibrations, and just very responsive and nice to drive. So we have, we have very good feedback on that one. And then we have, can mention, L120 electric conversion uh, wheel loader that is running right now with a customer, a cement producer, Heidelberg Materials, in a big limestone mine. Oh wow! Uh, so also also be also being tested right now in uh, in Sweden. Can you talk? So there's one that I'm aware of, which is called uh, it's it's a pilot program with Casper, and they're known to do a lot of indoor demolitions. And this seems to be a natural place for battery electric equipment, where you need to have something operating indoors or in a mining situation where you have a confined space and air quality, breathing quality is essential the ability to run a battery electric probably cuts down on respirators probably cuts down on you know just watery eyes itchy eyes makes the whole thing a lot safer quieter more comfortable ray can you speak to that a little bit yeah casper was part of a an airshed project that we did in california which was a, a demonstration project for a lot of these different technologies and different use cases and we did that in cooperation with the airshed districts in California, the South Coast especially, was involved in that one. And it was exactly that. It was finding the applications where there are advantages to electric machines and those advantages could be demonstrated. You know, as we spoke earlier, we have to look for where these machines have advantages beyond just being emission-free. It's not enough to just say these machines have less emissions, therefore everybody should pay a lot more money for that benefit. We have to make I mean, the I would benefit say that. <laughs> to the customer. <laughs> well, we have to make the benefit to the customer for in relation to his job and his economic realities. We have to make that equation work. So what these demonstration projects do is is find applications where not only the emission free is very valuable, like working indoors or working around livestock or applications like that, but that all the other features of an electric machine can shine. So, and that's part of the transition and the transformation we're going through. So it's not a matter because we have a, an L25 electric compact wheel loader, we don't think for a minute that that's going to replace every diesel wheel loader tomorrow. But as we- Right, it's not a question of if you build it, they will come. Right. As we develop these technologies, as we scale them, as the prices normalize, uh, there's more and more applications where the, these advantages come to play. And, you know, that will transform more and more of the industry as we go towards our fossil free target in 2040 or 2050, depending on what horizon you're looking at. The other thing I would say is we have to pay close attention to the fleets that are out there. So heavy equipment in our case has a 10 to 20 year lifespan minimum. So there's a lot of machines out there from the early part of the century from you know 1990s that are still actively working. And we have to also pay attention to not only how do we cycle them out, but how do we run them in a sustainable way while they're still in operation. Even if they're backup machines, how do we run them on alternative fuels? How do we run them in a greener sense 
so that they can contribute less to the problem than they are today or if we don't do anything. And there's so much to unpack in that sentence. I I really want to like drill into that because I think that there's a lot of really critical knowledge and critical intelligence to that, whether it's a matter of, you know, retrofitting a diesel vehicle, an existing diesel vehicle to be capable of running biodiesel, whether it's converting a natural, you know, a generator to natural gas or, or some other, you know, less polluting fuel system. I think that's a, a great point. The one thing that I really wanted to highlight, and I was hoping you were going to bring it up, so I'm going to have to inject it here very artificially. You guys are running in the Toronto Zoo, and this is really critical because the electric equipment doesn't freak out the animals. So, like, if you are, you know, if, if you're kind of, you know, poo-pooing the environmental thing and you're one of these guys that, you know, doesn't believe climate change is real or anything like that, at the very least, you can understand that, that this is this has real benefits to not only humans, but animal life as well. Because if you can get up close to the cattle on a farm without spooking them, if you can get close to the animals in a zoo so that you can get them to the vet and veterinary care and things like that, this is a real advantage that everybody can get behind. Absolutely. And that, those are the, we have to find those applications where, like I said, the, the benefits of electric drives and electric machines really shine. So if, if you're, you know, in, in the middle of a field and, you know, no one's around you, nothing's around you, it's pretty hard to make the case that you need to replace every diesel with an electric machine tomorrow. Yes. Um, because that application, really, there is n- nothing pressing in that application, economically speaking, for the customer to convert. So, but we w- eventually want to convert him. So the way to do that is to find more and more applications where electric fits. As more and more of the population converts, then more and more of the infrastructure becomes viable. And then the whole thing starts, to, you get to a tipping point where all of a sudden it's easier to fuel, to refuel an electric machine than it will be a diesel machine. The electric yes. refueling becomes more available and easier than an electric machine. One of the comparisons I make is with the automotive. I had an electric car, it, a long trip, stopping at a highway to recharge a car, quite honestly, still was kind of a pain. You had to plan for it. You had to know where your charge stops are. You had to make sure they were available when you got there. And then you had to wait half an hour, an hour, 40 minutes, whatever it is. On the flip side, I had a charger in my garage. So every night I pulled into my garage, plugged my car in. I always knew it was full charge. Yeah, I never had to worry about it, never had to worry about stopping at a gas station. So I love that part of it. So again, it's taking advantage of the features of an electric machine and spreading them out to every application that where they do have an advantage. And that will eventually allow the technology to mature and the systems to get in place, the infrastructure to come in place that it can spread to every application in the future. So I think that's the path forward. It's one step at a time. Again, I'm not one of these to believe the all at at all cost approach is reasonable. This has got to be a transformation that's well thought out, well planned and well executed if we're going to be successful doing this. 
I love it. Well, you know, this is the first in a series of podcasts that we're doing with Volvo CE. So be sure to join us for the next one. We're going to dive into a bit more detail on construction equipment and on some of the more specific machines that are out there. And uh, Ray, hopefully we'll see you for that one as well. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.